My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 50. Can't believe it. 50. And we're still reading out of the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 35 and 36, Leviticus 25, and Psalm 82. Exodus 35. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whomever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skin dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense and onk stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its coverings, clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases, the ark with its poles and the atonement cover, and the curtain that shields it, the table with its poles and all its articles, and the bread of the presence." the lampstand that is for light with its accessories, lamp and oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the bronze basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases, and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard." the tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyard and the ropes, the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron and the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. When the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses's presence and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, or goat hair, ram skin, dyed red, or other durable leather brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord, and everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work brought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen. And all the women who were willing had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onk stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. 
Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ashemach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skills to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word through the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. All those who were skilled among the workers made the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by expert hands. All the curtains were the same size. 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. They joined five of the curtains together and did the same with the other five. Then they made loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtain in one set, and the same was done with the end curtain in the other set. They also made 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set, with the loops opposite each other. Then they made 50 gold clasps and used them to fasten the two sets of curtains together so that the tabernacle was a unit. They made curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains were the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. They joined five of the curtains in one set and the other six in the other set. Then they made 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and along also along the edges of the end curtain in the other set. They made 50 bronze clasps to fasten the tent together as a unit. Then they made for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. They made upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame was ten cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. They made all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. They made twenty frames for the south side of the tabernacle and made forty silver bases to go under them. Two bases for each frame, one under each projection." For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, they made 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. They made six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, and two frames were made for the corners of the tabernacle at the far end. At these two corners, the frames were durable from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both were made alike. So there was eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. They also made crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle and five for those on the other side, five for the frames on the west at the far end of the tabernacle. They made the center crossbar so that it extended from end to end at the middle of the frames. 
They overlaid the frames with gold and made gold rings to hold the crossbars. They also overlaid the crossbars with gold. They made the curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. They made four posts of acacia wood for it and overlaid them with gold. They made gold hooks for them and cast their four silver bases. For the entrance to the tent, they made a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. And they made five posts with hooks for them. They overlaid the top of the posts and their bands with gold and made their five bases of bronze. Leviticus 25. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your field, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you. For yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land, whatever the land produces may be eaten. The year of Jubilee. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 15th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family, property, and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee, and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as a foreigner and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of you follow, fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and they can then go back to their property. 
Anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. During that time, the sailor may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before a full year has passed, the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and the buyer's descendants. It is not to be returned in the Jubilee, but houses and villages without walls around them are to be considered as belonging to the open country. They can be redeemed and they are to be returned in the Jubilee. The Levites always have the right to redeem their houses in Levitical towns, which they possess. So the property of the Levites is redeemable. That is, a house sold in any town they hold and is to be returned in the Jubilee, because the houses in the towns of the Levites are their property among the Israelites. But the pasture land belonging to their towns must not be sold. It is their permanent possession. And any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and be your God. If any of you fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inheritance property and can make them slaves for life. But you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreign clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They and their buyer are to count the time from the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. The price for their release is to be based on the rate period to a hired worker for that number of years. If many years remain, they must pay for their redemption a larger share of that price paid for them. If only a few years remains until the year of Jubilee, they are to compute that and pay for their redemption accordingly. They are to be treated as workers hired from year to year. You must see it that those to whom they owe service do not rule over them ruthlessly. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Psalm 82, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. 
All right, I still can't believe it's day 50. But in this part of the story, Exodus 35 to 40 is about God resolving alienation. So the people are all participating, fulfilling, implementing the plan, not innovating or picking their own adventure, as Dr. Carmen Imes describes. There is a redeeming sort of action going on with redirection of creative energy from golden calf to creating the tabernacle, where the people broke the commands in the last story and broke the command in the Garden of Eden, which led to the breaking of our dwelling with God. Here in Exodus, we are reading yet again how God is making a way for us to restore our relationship. What a gracious God. It's truly unbelievable that he encounters our rebellion time and time again. We find ourselves in alienation and he keeps finding a way to restore and redeem. I know sometimes it can be or seem more fun to work on creative strategy, developing the plan, but in this story, we're reading the importance of implementing a plan that is given to us and following instructions exactly as they are given. What's harder, following instructions, making your own, or figuring it out through experimentation? (laughs) I think there's a time and a place for it all, but here we are clearly seeing there is a time when God is giving specific instructions. We are not to freestyle or go rogue here. We are to follow his guidelines specifically. This story leads to the climax in the chapter 40 where we're headed, where God's presence is coming. We follow these instructions to help restore and redeem and allow him to cover and atone so that he can dwell with us. That's the point. The verse about how God cast a vision and and the hearts were stirred to respond. I don't know. It really resonates with me. In marketing, I think we often ask how to not only cast, but communicate a vision that stirs people with the value or the need to respond. People in this story were voluntarily offering their specific resources and gifts. As Dr. Iams describes, there's a clear invitation in the story to give resource, gold, jewelry, fur, leather, gems, and a clear invitation for skilled workers, including both men and women making things. They're giving their talent, their time and service. There's a sense of full participation, everyone in the community. Dr. Imes focused my attention to the fact that Yahweh is calling the shots. It isn't one major donor, organization or person um, over everyone else. The people are working in response to Yahweh and in concert with each other. And it wasn't only the giving of resources, talent, time and service expertise and all sorts of artistic crafts, But in chapter 35, verse 30 to the 34, it's about the ability to teach others as well, these artistic crafts and abilities. In Exodus 35, Moses had to ask them to stop because people were so generously giving to God's work. Ah, what would the world be like if we generously gave and conservatively took from the kingdom of God? Like, honestly, like, what would that be like? I think the redemptive story is headed that direction, but we need a lot of God's help. What does that mean and what does that look like? I constantly try to remind myself and my students that profit is not a purpose, but an outcome. Is the point of taking more value than you give or to create value exchanges that sustainably serve the kingdom of God? Profit is not inherently bad, but if the point is to take more than you give, I question the motive. Is it that we think we know better and can use the resources better? Maybe. But profit is an income above the cost. So profit, like everything else, our resources, time, talent, portion of power and authority, our very existence is a gift. We are here to steward. We don't own it. 
It's a great responsibility and something for which we are accountable for as well. God has made it clear, blessing is for the purpose of blessing so far in the story. So blessing is not to take um, more than someone else or to sit on our laurels with our purpose or our own adventure or our own ad- for our own adventure's sake, right? Creativity has a purpose in the story. So does implementation of the plan as God describes. And there are also guardrails God creates to help us navigate that to which we have been given dominion over to rule, fill, and subdue. Leviticus speaks to this as we read today. Leviticus, of course, continues to be difficult to read because it's a cross-cultural experience, and cross-cultural experiences can be really fun, but also really wild. Dr. Scott Ray, a Talbot Biola Old Testament scholar, wrote an article describing how Leviticus 25, verse 23, as well as Genesis, make it clear that God is the ultimate owner of everything and everyone At the same time, laws are created to govern economic units. An economic unit can be measured at different levels based on the culture. For example, in our world, individuals are the basis of an economic unit and laws are created with that in mind. However, as Dr. Sandra Richter, an Old Testament biblical scholar from Westmont, describes how individualism as we know it, where we as individual rights and ownership, was not a concept in that time period. Yes, there was individuals, but ownership was seen through the lens of bedov, which is Hebrew for the father's household, where grandparents, parents, and minor children all lived together. While a woman, child, or slave would not have had individual rights, nor did any of the men, really. They were all tethered to their fathers, grandfathers, brothers, in this primogenture order or succession. And while the oldest living male of the family would have had the most or highest authority, the economic unit and law would not have been understood merely through what the individual person wanted. For his honor, integrity, and position was tied, so many others within his economic unit were dependent on him, and he was in part dependent on them to preserve his honor, integrity, and you know thriving in the community. So the oldest living male had authority and responsibility to protect and provide for the succession and perhaps even growth of that economic unit. Remember, God gave humans the ability to create, and one of those things we have rampantly created over time are sociocultural, economic, political, and technological contexts. And while we are reading about laws here in this story, which seek to redeem and restore the cultural context of that time, and thereby improve our understanding of God's immutable character and what he's pursuing— Here he is not deconstructing a culture or seeking to rebuild it by prescribing everything they should do or proscribing everything they should not do from the ground up. Instead, we are reading laws that are giving more value and protection to the least powerful than they were before. We're also reading laws that sought to redeem and restore people that found themselves in difficult situations. And as Dr. Richter states, God is not endorsing the culture. He is incarnating into the culture to make his story and who he is real and known to real people. God is manifesting himself in this culture. He is not dismantling it, but critiquing it. God doesn't want to dismantle it. Otherwise, he would have had to go back on his promise and there would be no means of communication, passing the stories of faith down and revealing more and more about who he is and the story we are in. I think God is acknowledging, in fact, the role he gave humans in sociocultural and economic creation or management of the dominion. 
but he is clearly putting in guardrails that were not there before that would incrementally help to improve human flourishing and put God on display in contrast to neighboring cultures and economies, ways of living. This nuance for me is so important and hard to remember, I think. God is not completely deconstructing or reconstructing culture. He is making strategic edits to reveal more about his will, his ways, and the direction of restoration and redemption towards dwelling with God and representing him well in ruling, reigning, working, caring, and blessing others with the blessing he gave us in role, provision, and progeny. Oh, the story, so cool. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.